what you're asking. Climbing out of the ditch, I could see my father's long silver hair bouncing as he ran down the street. Jody was extricating himself from the passenger side, navigating his way through the briar patch we had landed in. Other people, aunts and uncles, cousins, started making their way to the crash site. But I could see my great-uncle John hanging back, only inching closer as if there were no urgency, as if it wasn't his car I just totaled by driving it off the road and into a ditch. I was 13 years old, and this was my worst Easter yet. My Uncle John was my grandmother's younger brother. He had all of her toughness with none of her softness, her causticity without any of her wit. He had had a heart attack and died on the table and then came back, as if the hereafter would rather have to deal with him later. And when I was 13, he decided I needed to learn how to drive a car. We were celebrating Easter, as much as one celebrates Easter, meaning we were all together waiting for 5 o'clock when we could all leave. My cousin Kathy was hosting at her new home in a new development, a long, winding cul-de-sac off the main drag. Uncle John had had a few drinks. The Dunnett children, my grandmother and her brothers, were always social drinkers of spirits, never beer or wine. They are all gone now, but I can only ever picture them with tumbler glass in hand, usually held aloft to punctuate some point. So tumbler in hand, Uncle John told me I should learn how to drive. He motioned to his son Jody, and the two of them bustled me outside. Maybe because he'd been drinking, or because he was older and his vision was not what it was. Uncle John instructed Jody to get into the passenger seat, then opened the driver's door and handed me the keys. Missing from all of this was any kind of instruction. I wasn't being taught to drive. Perhaps he thought, like animals in the wild, we are all born with all of the knowledge and skills we need for survival. But as I got in, I could feel nothing in my DNA about driving a Saturn wagon. He closed the door and somehow the car started going. Did I start the ignition? Did Jody? Was the car already running? I don't remember. Jody was telling me things, but I don't remember those either, or wasn't able to listen because of the thrum of blood in my head. I did not want to do this. At no point did I want to do this. It wasn't the case that I got nervous once I was in the car. I was nervous when Uncle John looked at me from across the dining room table. We started moving across the street, creeping along by inches. My hope that I would be going so slow that Jody would get fed up and put a stop to all of this. Give her more gas, he told me. You can go faster. I acceded against every desire I had. We sped up, and the car started bucking, and I thought about the old Peso Bill cartoon I'd watch as a boy. We were coming up to the cul-de-sac itself, the end of the line. I'd need to turn the wheel, and to turn the wheel I'd need to slow down. Turning at fast speeds feels dangerous. Something perhaps is in my DNA. I put my foot on the brake pedal. Nothing happened. It gave no resistance. The brake's not working, I told Jody. He didn't say anything. We hopped up over the sidewalk and down into the ditch. The car rattled down the embankment before hitting a small tree, shattering the windshield. I could feel the engine shudder, then shake off. There was light popping noises of metal cooling under the hood. I got out of the car and fell into the briars, cutting my arms and face. As I climbed through the patch and back up to the road, I could see my father his furious and graceful run undercut by his curly gray hair bouncing gaily against the April breeze. The brakes didn't work, I explained. Are you okay? He reached out to me. Why did he let you drive a standard? I I tried hitting the brakes, but they didn't work. I explained again. That was the clutch, he told me. Why the hell did he let you drive a standard? I I tried the brakes. 
A tow truck was called. The story was invented for insurance purposes, and now that everyone was safe, much fun was made of old Uncle John and dumb little Ryan. He did that to me too, my dad told me. When I was 13, he made me drive his car up and down Clinton Road. It was Thanksgiving, so cars were parked along either side, and it was always so windy and steep and icy. Much of the talk of the accident in the hours and days and weeks that followed centered around crazy Uncle John and his reckless predilection for allowing young boys to drive his car. He was foolish, possibly a little drunk. He certainly didn't seem too broken up about it, hanging back the way he did when everyone else rushed forward. But I kept thinking about why I had said yes. I didn't want to do it. I was never a daredevil kid. Always a little cautious, perhaps overcautious. I was not even the first bit excited to drive a car. It was the last thing I wanted to do. You want to do this? Jody had asked me as we buckled our seatbelts. Sure, I said. Ah, screwer, Pug says. It's now six years later, and we're in my 1985 Chevy Celebrity coasting south on Route 24. Late afternoon, early May, we are on our way back from buying advance tickets to the Phantom Menace. Daryl rides with us silently. Pugs is always giving me advice on my love life, and it's almost always this. Screwer. What advice do you give your buddy than that he is without fault? That the girl who broke his heart wasn't worth that hurt in the first place? Yeah, I think. Screwer. Then the woman besides us shifts lanes too soon, clips the rear of our car. I'm not a speedy driver even on the highway, but I'm going fast enough that the car careens out of control. We spin 180, 360, 540 degrees and hit the concrete median with a force that I feel all my organs shift an inch to the right. The engine stalls out, and as, we pull my, as I pull myself back into this moment, I see the approaching headlights of the Legion of Commuters heading south, heading home. What a long day for all of them. I'm able to get the car started and pull across all three lanes into the breakdown before any of them reach us. Another minute later, even 30 seconds later, we would collide with all those cars, several cars, and that would make the evening news. The one in the other car has already pulled over. She's a mess. She's nearly sobbing. She begs me to go around insurance to maybe just handle it between the two of us. Her husband will be so mad if their rates go up. Daryl is out surveying the damage. He seems to be in shock. She hit, us, she hit us right here, and, and we went spinning, he explains as I exchange information with the woman. He repeats it twice. We could have died, Pug says we get back in the car. Screw her! The car is drivable. One headlight out, but drivable. We get back home, we eat, we joke. Pug gives me some more advice, the same advice. We're fishing a sea, you understand, plenty of others. It's a big ocean, lots of places to swim. I bring the guys home. They're neighbors, so it's one drop-off. I sit in my car at the end of Helen Way, their street. It's late enough that I can go home. I'm 19, and you don't want to go home too early, when folks are still up. But it's maybe 11 now, or it's close to it. Everybody's asleep. I knock at her back door. Her dad and stepmom have recently renovated the top floor, and she's alone. If I knock, she'll answer. She seems a little surprised to see me. I think about the last time I was here, only a week or so earlier. How hurt I had felt when I left, when I walked away from her and got in my car, back when it had two working headlights, and I drove off. Maybe she was wrong, or maybe she was right, and I was right. Maybe we were all just a little bit off from one another, that it all seemed wrong. I sit in her kitchen and I think about being wrong and being right, and maybe how it's not that important. Maybe we love each other, maybe we just fuck up sometimes, and if we need to prioritize things, maybe we should put the fucking up aside. She's quiet, 
and I'm quiet. And maybe I should just say that I'm sorry. That I don't always know how to act. And I can see her side of it all now. And that I can't always do that. I don't always allow myself to do that. Maybe I was wrong, or maybe I wasn't. But there are more important things than being right. How many times did I come to that back door late at night? God, how we would laugh. Nobody made me laugh like her. So I think I should tell her all this. Why else do you knock on a girl's window in the middle of the night? I'm shaking. I almost died tonight, I tell her. And then I go home. They explain that your perception of time slows down in an accident. That things happen so fast, so chaotically, but yet the clock slows. The aperture of our mind's eye widens. I don't remember the moment before we were on the bridge. I feel like I remember seeing the broken down semi, its road flares laid down in the snow, but this might have been something I was able to take in the moments afterwards as I constructed the story and the alibi. We're on a snowy road in Montana, in her scrappy Japanese import, having dropped down from Canada and cutting through to the Dakotas. It had been over a week since we'd left Stinktown, began our travel across the country, spending the night in the open air in sleeping bags, waking up with numb, disappearing feet. The car came out of nowhere, jutting around the semi-tractor trailer, crossing over the double yellow line into our lanes. I was at the wheel, and she was rolling her cigarette on a library coffee of still life with Woodpecker, the other car barreling towards us. The thing about time stopping is that it never happens before you make your decision. It waits and waits, and allows you to luxuriate in the roominess of your mistake. I cut the wheel in a fraction of a second, and then had a decade in which we knew we were going to crash. I don't know how the moment played out for her, at what speed, how much time her brain granted her to process our possible demise. I watched her spirit tobacco slide off her lap. Our eyes meet in that eon. I'm sorry I killed us, mine said. We shattered against the guardrail. The sound of metal and plastic and physics and breaking were so acute and actual. It is always louder and realer than you imagine it will be. The creek was below us, but the guardrail earned its name. Our car stayed on the bridge, the engine still sputtering its saddle, dreaming against the crumpled hood. In the rearview mirror, we could see the brake lights receding. The towns in Montana were either huge and empty, or postage stamps would get passed through during a sentence. The driver could have been a hundred yards, or three towns away, or both. A sheriff came by and called for a tow, and gave us both a ride to town. He told us he saw what happened. The broke-down semi, the car crossing the double yellow, the crash... He was going to cite me for hazardous driving. He always goes five miles under the speed limit, she chortled. Perhaps he should have gone ten under, the sheriff said. Somebody's got to pay for that guardrail. We were stuck in Montana for a few days while the scrapper was, is repaired. It threw off our schedule, but Idaho's small, she assured me. Should take no time at all. Time. What had I thought about in the slow drizzle of time from the moment the car slided and the moment of impact? I thought about dying so far from home, how I hadn't really said a real goodbye to either of my parents, just a note and a phone message back in a few weeks. I thought about our plan, hers and mine, get her out to the west coast, get her settled, I'd follow after the school year ended. I thought about the year we'd had before, the hikes and libraries and the ice cream, the trivial pursuit box we carried in my car so we could challenge each other in Whitman and Brockton and Abington and Newton and Hingham and other wealthy towns. We should be Jewish, she proclaimed, laying on her belly on the Wayland Town Green as she dropped each colored pie piece in the Ziploc bag. I love you, I thought. We should just go home. Go back to Massachusetts with me. Let's be Jewish. Let's just go home. I don't want this life out here, I thought.
The people in Montana were nicer than I could have imagined people being. We got the car fixed. We got to Washington. I bought a bus ticket. We made plans for that summer when I was coming back. She was going to work in the library. I was going to teach. We'd cook up salmon she would catch in the streams. I got on the bus. Would she have come home with me if I'd asked her? Would she have never left in the first place if I told her I'd wanted us to stay? There were questions that hung in the air that existed only in the elongated ghostly space between impacts. A few months later, a bill came from the Montana Department of Transportation. $375 for guardrail repair. I just put it away in a drawer. I wasn't ever going back there. That's the moment that always lingers in front of me. The moment when I look into someone's eyes and know what I want. To stay out of the car, to say I'm sorry, to say please stay, and I freeze. And in the locking up of that moment, I can see the spring set, the trap released, the tipping of the first and only domino. I can see the guardrail coming. It was two and a half years before I had had another accident. I was seeing a new girl, a sweet girl. We had met in a lot of places, friends of friends, pool parties, record shops, coffee houses. We had gone to movies and concerts. We kissed on the jetty, the clouds puffy purple bruises against the summer sky. I was usually good up until this point. It was easy to get lost in that moment or to allow someone else to think you had. Where it got hard was in wanting something from someone else, to admit to wishing and hoping. But the list of girls I'd kissed just once would always be longer than those I'd kissed twice. Beautiful summer nights make you brave. But there are falls and winters and silent recriminations across midnight kitchen tables and caustic-looking cars in Montana. Sometimes it's better to just keep moving on. The woman yanked her car out of the Hockamock liquor store parking lot, trying to pull out against traffic. The look I saw on her face in the moment before impact showed me that she knew she had made a mistake, that she knew she didn't have the time or the space to make it across. I couldn't help but collide with her. I was going straight down 106. 35, 40 miles per hour probably. There was nothing I could do. We pulled over the side of the road. She got out, apologized. The front of my Saturn was folded up, one headlight smashed, a crack down my windshield. We don't have to involve your insurance, she said. I'll pay to fix your car up. It was an appealing offer. But I was 25 years old. Maybe it was time for me to stop getting into accidents, or at least to stop pretending. Let's wait for the police, I told her. We should file an accident report. I got home. From my bedroom window, I could see my car in the driveway. With only the exterior porch light illuminating it, I couldn't tell anything was wrong at all. I had no one to tell. Maybe someone would ask, see it at work, but otherwise it was just something that happened to me. But I called the girl. The summer night girl, the kiss on the jetty girl. It seemed a thing to do. I picked her up at her folks' house, one headlight beaming against the garage door as she skunked out. It was too late. Even for a girl just out of college, going out with a boy that late at night was trouble. We drove around back streets and dark country roads. I could see critters dancing in the light of my headlamp when we stopped and lingered at four ways. We talked about inconsequential things, sang along softly to the songs on the radio. There had been perhaps enough driving for the night and I began to make my way back. I didn't feel that brave anymore. I had seen deer jet across the stretch of road before, going from one field to the woods across the other way. It was easy to imagine the staccato leaping out of the darkness, the tuft of white tail against the black of the night in the road. But it was easy to be a catastrophe collector, to avoid making choices that might be wrong, to accede to the slow momentum of refusing to move. I want to be with you, I blurted out, like, for real, like only you. I swallowed hard. I want to be with you. Do you want to be with me? I looked over but tried to keep my eyes on the road, aware as I stared through my cracked windshield that things jump out at you sometimes.
Sure, she said. 